Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ear, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm a lead pastor here, and we're um, kicking off a new sermon series called Raised. We're going to spend the next four weeks kind of sitting in this. Um, Great time to do it. Happy uh, Resurrection Day. Isn't it a beautiful day? I mean, I love uh, this season. I love springtime. Um, It's one of my favorite times of the year. Spring is springing. As my father-in-law would say, things are greening up. Um, And I love that when the flowers come out on the trees and the lawn starts turning green and um, it's a season of new life. And it's a great day to celebrate a man who didn't stay dead which is why we're here. Um, Not just today on Easter Sunday, but every Sunday, because there was a man who didn't stay dead. Um, It's an incredible story. Um, We we spent some time on Friday night considering um, his death and uh, the fact that he came to be like, unlike any other man. I mean, he he came to ultimately um, die, but not his death, ours. Right, that's the story. This guy um, lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death. Not because he was a sinner, but because we were. And he was the hero of the story, the Savior, the one who ultimately gave himself in our place, was judged with our judgment so that we could then be judged with his righteousness. We could be accepted, right? And uh, resurrection is, of course, central to that. If, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then obviously he did not satisfy God in regard to sin because death is the result of sin. And so the story is, is um, buttoned up, if you want to put it that way, with the resurrection. It is absolutely essential to the story uh, of Jesus, right? Um, let me ask you a question, though. Have you ever had doubts about the resurrection? Do you currently have doubts? about the resurrection. Because here's the reality, you you probably should. (laughs) It's a crazy story. Let's just admit it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. You know? What we're saying is that a man came back 
from the dead, right? Not like, not, he wasn't like mostly dead, like Princess Bride, you know what I'm saying? Like, like dead, dead, like dead. Not like a zombie. I think most of us would honestly be a little more comfortable with that sometimes. Probably more believable in our culture. We love zombies for some reason right now. And the idea that, oh, yeah, we got this guy who's the undead dead, you know. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. No, we're talking about somebody who was dead, dead, and is now alive, right? And not just dead, dead, but dead in in an incredibly brutal fashion, right? When they flogged and crucified somebody, they were dead. You know what I'm saying? Like like the Romans knew. They, they They knew how to flog someone to the point where they were close to death but not dying. Like not dying yet. Um, but it was for the point of increasing the excruciating pain of the crucifixion itself. And so these guys, would, Jesus was flogged, and we know that it was a particularly violent flogging because Pilate was actually hoping that the Jews would look at it and say, okay, don't crucify him. That punishment was enough. So that means that by the time the crucifixion was over, he had probably lost almost every drop of blood in his body. Most of his skin was ripped off. His muscles were shredded, tendons, bones exposed. I mean, this guy was brutally beaten. And then he was hung on a cross. Crucifixion is um, the most excruciating, torturous form of execution man has ever desired. I mean, it is phenomenally horrible. You take somebody like that and you hang them on a cross, you nail them to it. And the way you die, normally, if you haven't been flogged, um, when you've been crucified by suffocation because you, you're fully extended and it pulls your, your rib cage out and, and you have to pull up to be able to, ex- to close to breathe, right? So it, it, it pulls your, your lungs out. And so these guys would have to pull themselves up, pulling against, of course, the, the nails and the foot in their hands in order to simply breathe until they were finally so exhausted that they suffocated. Horribly excruciating form of death and incredibly effective. People did not survive crucifixions. Jesus was dead, 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 right? I mean, like, these guys were expert, um, and uh, not only was he crucified, he then had his heart pierced by a spear. Um, They wanted to make sure he was dead. They were breaking the legs of the others who had been crucified. Um, and the reason they broke the legs was so that they could no longer push up to breathe, which that sped up the suffocation process. It would speed up the death. When they came to Jesus, he was already dead, so they wanted to make sure. So they stuck a spear between his ribs, pierced his heart, and out came a flow of blood and water, which means the pericardial sac around his heart had burst. So he had died of heart failure. He had died of a broken heart. He was dead, you guys. And then he came back to life. What we're saying is this guy came back, but not like just barely alive, like healthy, fixed, breathing, alive, real. For this to happen, every natural law has to be turned on its head. Everything we know from human experience is contradicted because this just doesn't happen, right? Maybe it does not The Walking Dead. Or if you're Jack Bauer on 24, right? You can get resurrected like three times in a 24-hour period of time, but not in real life, not where it really counts. We just don't see this sort of stuff. So what we're going to do is we're going to take some time over the next four weeks, and we're going to sit in this, and I'm going to push a little bit. 
I'm going to push. I believe that it happened. I believe that there's credible evidence that actually supports it happening. I think that it's reasonable, intellectually reasonable, to believe in the resurrection and, in fact, compelling to do so. But I'm going to push you because I think it's also important to acknowledge our doubts and to embrace them, in fact. And so we're going to take some time. We're going to talk about the resurrection and, um, and what it means if it's true. And this morning, we're going to spend specifically time talking about faith and doubt and how faith and doubt are part of God's plan to actually grow us. Here's the thing. If, if you're here this morning and you're skeptical about the resurrection, I want you to know I get it because you should be. The claims that we're making are phenomenal. They're radical. They're, they're supernatural. I get that, right? If you believe in Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ but you find that at times you are haunted by doubts, I want you to know you're in good company. Doubt has always been the companion of faith. The early believers understood that. They were no strangers to doubt. Our passage, um, in fact, shows that. Now, our passage is from Matthew 28 is the account of what happened after the crucifixion of Christ. Okay. Now, Jesus, was, was, uh, he had his last supper with his disciples on a Thursday night. He was betrayed that night. They came in the middle of the night to the garden and, and stole him away and took him through a series of kangaroo courts uh, to convict him, finally before Pilate. Um, and he ended up being crucified on Friday morning, and he was dead by Friday afternoon. They took him off the cross. They buried him in, uh, in a rich man's tomb. And uh, that was all done before sundown because for the Jewish people, it was important that that was done before Sabbath began. Sabbath ran for them from Friday night to Saturday night. That was their day. Okay, so they would go from night to night. And so um, all Saturdays, silent Saturday, nothing takes place. But early on Sunday morning, the women get up to go visit the tomb. Now that Sabbath is over, they're up. It's probably before daybreak. We don't know exactly what time it is, but they're heading to the tomb. And when they get there, man, they are in for a surprise. <laughs> they get there and the stone is rolled away. Now, that was fairly typical. When they, when they carved these um, tombs, they would carve them in rock, and then they would carve a, um, like a, uh, a U-shaped rolling thing, you know, and they would have a round box that they would just roll down, and it would settle in front of the door, and that would protect the bodies inside from, um, from grave robbers or animals or, or other things like that, right? It sealed the tomb. Well, they got there and the rock was rolled completely out of the way. And not only that, more surprising was there was this glowing dude sitting on top of it, right? An angel. He's sitting up there and he's like, welcome. I, I was expecting you guys. Look around, okay? Go check it out because he's not in there. He told you he would rise again. He did it. Take a look. All right. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to go back to the other disciples and tell them that Jesus rose again. And that he wants to meet them in Galilee. Okay, so go to this mountain in Galilee and, uh, and he'll meet you there. And, and it says that they, they just ran, right? They left, filled with both fear and joy. I think that's really the only reasonable response to that experience. Um, both terrified and overflowing like, holy cow, what just happened, like joy type thing. And as they're running, they actually run into Jesus. Jesus purposely gets in their way, encounters them on the way back, and they just collapse at his feet. They grab his feet, weeping, worshiping, thankful. Now, this is all important. We're going to get into this, not this morning, but, but in, the, in the coming days, as we take a look at the fact that, it was, that women were the first ones to witness the resurrected Jesus, that they physically touched him. 
There's a lot of things here that are very important. We're going to get into those in the coming weeks. But what I want to focus on this morning is the fact that when they got to the disciples, how the disciples responded. Um, Take a look at verses 16 through 18. Because we get a glimpse of how the disciples responded there. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. Now these are the eleven that um, after Judas betrayed, he was was the twelfth, he was gone. So these are the guys that had lived with Jesus for three years, had been in the trenches together, eating together, camping together, um, just doing life together. Very tight. These eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Nothing surprising so far, right, according to the narrative. I mean, that's exactly what you'd expect, for them to obey, to go to the mountain, to see Jesus, to be broken in worship when they see him. It's the next clause that grabs me. Well, let's take a look at what it says at the end of that verse. But some doubted. But some doubted. I think it's actually quite remarkable that, um, that Matthew includes that little fact. Because that's counterintuitive. I mean, honestly, if, if, if you're telling a story and you want people to believe it, you don't want to tell people that the people that were actually there didn't believe it. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that's not incredibly really good salesmanship. What you want to do is you want to take these leaders of the faith and put them up and show them as paragons of faith and virtue. Look, these early guys, man, they were, they were filled with joy. They were so full of faith. They were so confident. Be like them. But instead, Matthew says they went, they worshiped. There was a genuine response. But even as they were there, there was doubt. In fact, when you look at all four Gospels, you find the same thing. Now, the Gospels, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those are four historical accounts of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. From, told from four different perspectives. The authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, wrote them for different audiences. And, and we have um, all four of those historical accounts. All four writers describe the doubt that occurred after the resurrection. In Luke, um, when the women went back to um, the disciples, Luke tells us that the disciples were uh, very dismissive of them. They didn't give them credence. And in fact, the actual phrase is they said, you are simply telling an idle tale. You're just women. You're just overcome with emotion. You're just uh, making it up. Now, they knew that the women weren't making it up. They knew the women well enough to know that they weren't deceptive. They weren't being deceivers. They weren't being malicious. What they probably thought was, you're just overcome with emotion. You got there and, and, you know, maybe the sun was playing weird on, the, on top of the rock and you thought you saw something, you know, what, you're just, they just didn't believe it, right? In fact, Mark comes out and actually says that. In Mark, when the women go back to tell the disciples, it says very bluntly, they just didn't believe her. They just didn't believe it, right? John pretty much tells us the same thing. You get to the end of John, the disciples don't believe. But the cool thing about John is we actually learn about one specific disciple. John kind of narrows in and focuses on um, the doubt of a very specific disciple named Thomas. Now, some of you may have heard about this guy. He's often nicknamed Doubting Thomas. You guys ever heard of this guy? Um, that name, Doubting Thomas, is, is usually used as, as kind of a pejorative or a, a negative nickname. Like, oh, you don't want to be a Doubting Thomas. 
Never want to be a doubting Thomas. This guy, he didn't have faith like the other disciples. He's kind of the lower class dude, right? All these other guys, man, they had faith. Then there was doubting Thomas, right? And doubting Thomas is kind of seen as this guy who had a second class faith because he, he, didn't, uh, he didn't believe like the other guys, or at least that's the perception of it. He's the doubting one. I think we misread that. In fact, let's flip over there. In your Bibles, go ahead and go to John chapter 20. Go ahead and flip over there. If you have one of our Bibles, just flip to the right to page 907. On page 907, you're going to find this story. So um, flip over to John chapter 20 in your Bible or in one of ours to page 907. And we're going to start with, with verse um, 24. All right, so John chapter 20. Uh, starting in verse uh, 24. Now, Thomas, one of the 12. Okay, so that, that gives us clarity. He was one of those guys who had for three years walked with Jesus and walked with these disciples, eating, breathing, sleeping together, right? These guys have been in the trenches together. You know what it's like after you've been with somebody in a really intense situation for that long? You come to know them really well, right? And you come to trust them, but you also learn that they're not always trustworthy. I mean, that's the, when you get to read through the Gospels, you figure out these guys really came to know each other well. They know when they were being stupid. They knew when you know, they'd seen each other become prideful. They'd seen each other need to be rebuked. But they also saw each other step up. And they saw it. So, so these guys have a tight relationship, okay? So Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, yay, twindom, was not with them when Jesus came. So Jesus appeared to the disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. We're not told why. He was out doing some business or something, but he wasn't with the disciples when Jesus appeared to them. And so the disciples are all excited and they come and tell Thomas about it. Verse 30. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. Now, these guys are pretty credible. They're not liars, right? They're not the smartest group in the world, but they're not liars. So what would you expect Thomas to do? Be like, oh, that's awesome, man, right? But notice what he does do. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I think about what's going on here. These disciples have basically shown up to, to Thomas and were saying to him, look, man, we saw Jesus. He's, he's risen, man. He's risen. We've seen him. And Thomas is like... That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. I don't believe you. Maybe you guys had some sort of group hallucination, right? You all got together and you were praying like we do late at night and you were tired. And, and maybe as you were praying, you, you guys just got all emotional and maybe you all thought you saw something, right? I don't believe it. If you want me to believe it, man, I got to see it. No, I don't even trust my own eyes. I need to touch it. I need to touch his hands. I need to stick my hand into the wound. I need to stick my hand into his side. You want me to believe it? I need to see him. I need to touch him. Take a look at verses 26 and 27. 26 and 27. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. This time he's there. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. 
Uh, Jesus kind of did this sort of stuff um, before his resurrection and after. Um, he did miracles. That's kind of being Jesus, right? Uh, walks on water, feeds lots of people with small amounts of food, and walks through walls. And so he just kind of shows up, right? Their doors are locked. Why are they locked? Because they're afraid, right? Jesus was just crucified, right? The Pharisees are in a murderous rage against Jesus and his disciples. These guys are potentially in danger. And so they're still like totally staying under the radar. And when they meet, they do it secretly, okay? Jesus just shows up in their midst and says, peace be with you. And then he immediately turns to Thomas. Hey, Thomas, how you doing, man? Look what he says. Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand. There you go. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, we have to do uh, a little bit of careful work here to make sure that we're getting the tone right. You know how, like, when you text somebody, it's really hard to know tone, right? Somebody texts you. You get the phone call. Why are you mad at me? I'm not mad at you. What are you talking about? Well, you texted me. You said, pick up the groceries. Yeah, I said, pick up the groceries. Why are you mad at me? I'm not mad at you, right? We, we put tone into things. You know what I'm saying? It's like when you read it and it seems like it's too short or maybe too abrupt or whatever. I think we do that here. I think we read a tone into Jesus' words. It's not there. I think most people read this as if Jesus were kind of rebuking Thomas. As if he were like, all right, Thomas, there were the other guys. They believed me. Then there's you, right? You're just so demanding. All right, here, you want to touch? Go ahead. There you go. There's the hole. You want to put your hand in there? Here, look, and there's the hole on my side. You want to touch that too? Go ahead, right? As if he were taunting him. Like, really, are you going to be that second-class faith guy? Is that really who you want to be? Why don't you just start believing? But I think we completely misread it. There's no rebuke in the text. Jesus doesn't show up and say, oh, Thomas, you have little faith. I don't see a rebuke. I see an invitation. I think he showed up and was like, hey, Thomas, man, you can believe it. It's real. I'm alive. Touch me. Go ahead, touch me. It's okay. It doesn't hurt. Here, touch it, man. I'm real. I'm physical. I am raised from the dead. I don't hear Jesus rebuking Thomas. I hear Jesus confirming that Thomas's questions were legitimate and worth answering, reasonable. And he was going to meet him in that reasonable question. What he's saying is, look, man, you doubted, and your doubt led you to ask some hard questions. I'm not afraid of your hard questions. I'm here to answer them. I'm going to meet you in your questions. The only thing I'm going to ask you in response is, as I do, I want you to believe. I want you to believe. How does Thomas respond? Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas's response is a statement of clear, confident, strong faith. My Lord and my God. What he's saying is, you're my, my Lord, you're my sovereign, you're my king. You are the one to whom I must submit my life. Why? Because you are God. You are Yahweh, the source of life in flesh. 
my Lord, my God. This is the strongest statement of the deity of Christ from any disciple's lips. Peter comes close. This is the, this is the most clear, most powerful, and it comes right at the end of the gospel as John's wrapping up this story. Man, Thomas gets the privilege of giving the most clear, direct proclamation of the glory, the sovereignty, and the deity of Jesus. And it's because he doubted. It's because he had the courage to doubt and ask the questions that came from the doubt. We have to get comfortable with doubt. See, I don't think Thomas was the least of the disciples. In this moment, he's the greatest. I don't think his doubt was an indictment of his faith. I think it was an expression of his faith. I don't think it was him questioning and rejecting. I think it was him asking honest questions that came from a reasonable and honest faith. And God was not put off. He met him in it. Here's my point, you guys. Jesus wasn't caught off guard by the doubt of his disciples. He expected it. In fact, he used their doubt to grow their faith. The disciples weren't afraid of doubt. They were honest about it. We see it throughout the text. Now, here's the thing. We're not very good with doubt, not culturally. Um, We struggle with it. Christians tend to think of doubt as weakness. If you doubt in your faith, you're obviously a weak believer. You're obviously struggling with, you know, you're not a mature believer. You're just not there yet. You got kind of a second class faith if you struggle with doubts. And that is, you need to realize that's not, that's not biblical. That's cultural. That's our cultural interpretation of how we deal with doubt. And the reality is, I think that leads Christians to often settle for a Sunday school theology, which basically says, this is what I was taught growing up, so therefore it's good enough for me. Please don't bother me with hard questions, Right? I'm not going to ask hard questions. I'm not going to look for hard answers. And what ends up happening is that these folks become afraid of difficult questions. And so when somebody um, brings up a difficulty, when somebody expresses difficulty believing something, they don't even know how to relate to that. They, They demonize those people. They become the enemies of the faith, those people out there asking those questions. Those people out there attacking our faith. What do they think in asking questions like that? This is our faith. You shouldn't ask tough questions. That's a Sunday school theology that's incredibly shallow and lacks genuine integrity. What ends up happening is a lot of times these folks really do have secret doubts. They just don't know how to ask the questions. They just don't know how to explore those doubts in a healthy way. And so they just kind of get locked up and put away and, and, and they, don't, they don't look at it and try to pretend it's not there. Now, non-Christian skeptics can do the same thing. Our culture, again, doesn't do well with doubt. Non-Christian skeptics, my friends who, who are in this camp, I have some of them who, who honestly hide behind their doubts like it's a shield um, so that they don't have to answer hard questions themselves. Like they've just become good at asking hard questions, right? They've learned the right attack questions to ask so that they can put other people off guard, and, and then they just kind of hide behind them so that they don't have to engage the questions themselves, Right? So they end up hiding behind their doubt. They end up hiding behind their skepticism, being able to basically throw out difficult questions as if they were super smart, right? And they often settle for a YouTube theology. You know what I'm talking about? Like these guys, they get on YouTube and they start these channels and basically they just get on YouTube and start spouting all this stuff. And, and they're, oh yeah, I saw this guy on YouTube, man. 
He says Christianity is just an, an amalgamism of, of, of old pagan philosophies and beliefs. That none of it's original. These guys all made it up. I heard it on YouTube, so that means it has to be true. Because we know everything on the internet's true, right? Right? <laughs> I'm being funny, but that actually is, for a lot of folks, that's how they shape their theology. They hide behind their skepticism. They feed it just enough so that they feel armed in it, and they don't ask genuine questions. Here's the thing. As we dig into this series, you guys, I have an appeal for you. Believers and unbelievers, we need to learn how to doubt well. We really need to learn how to process our doubt in a healthy way. And here's how I want you to do that. I'm going to talk, first of all, to believers. Believers, I want you to listen to your doubts and learn to ask good questions. I want you to listen to your doubts and learn to ask good questions. I want you to lean into your doubts instead of run away. You're like, wait a minute, Steve. Wait, wait, wait. That's not what I was told growing up. I was told that we're just supposed to um, run to faith. Don't ask the hard questions and ignore it. And I'm telling you that that's actually a way to, to make a wreck of your faith. We need to learn how to doubt well. Listen to me. Doubt is not sin. And it's not a failure of faith. It's part of the process. Paul, when he was um, in the early stages of the growth of the church, went from city to city preaching the gospel to people that had never heard it. And he came to this city called Berea. And in Berea, he came and he basically would unpack the Old Testament scriptures and say, look, here's Jesus. And he unpacked history and said, look, here's the evidence of Jesus's life, death, burial, and resurrection, right? And as he did that day after day in Berea, every single day, the people in that city would look at him and say, that's interesting. We have to think about it. That's interesting. We need to dig into that. That's interesting. We have some questions about that. Now, what's interesting is that Paul didn't get annoyed with them. He didn't grow frustrated with them. Why do you guys ask so many questions? Why is it so hard to convince you of things? Why do you keep checking me all the time? You know what he said? He called the Bereans noble. He called them noble because they pushed into their doubt, which ultimately allowed them to ask good questions instead of simply ignoring their doubt and staying on the surface. See, their doubt motivated them to dig in. And in that, Paul praises them. The evangelical Christian subculture that most of us swim in has subtly told us that doubt is treasonous and dangerous. But what I want you to hear is that doubt is inevitable in the Christian life. Inevitable. Doubt will either be the hidden weakness that blunts your faith, robs it of its real power, robs it of its true effectiveness, or it will be the friction that sharpens your faith and makes it more alive. It all depends on how you deal with it. See, when we suppress doubt, when we deny it, when we hide it away, it's kind of like the boogeyman. Remember the boogeyman? The boogeyman lived in your closet or maybe under your bed or maybe under the basement stairs, right? We had that gap that he could reach through, right? And what ends up happening is, is when you don't turn on the light, the boogeyman gets scarier. You know what I'm saying? Like the fangs get bigger, the eyes grow more demonic, the claws start, you know what I'm saying? Like pretty soon you can't even go in the room with a, with a closed closet. Why? Because the boogeyman lives in there, right? We, what we're called to do with our doubt is not hide it away where it's empowered, but to pull it out into the light. Because when we pull our doubts out into the light and actually examine them, 
it allows us to see what questions they actually lead to, which allows us to actually investigate, learn, and grow. We need to pull our doubts out. Otherwise, those doubts come to life and they destroy our faith because they destroy our integrity. Now, I love that word integrity. We, we use it a lot. A lot of businesses have it on their mission statement, right? Hanging on their wall. It's one of like the five things that govern how they do their business, integrity. And a lot of times what they mean by that is we tell the truth, right? But integrity means way more than simply telling the truth. It means having a life aligned with truth. It means there's a wholeness to your life where you're the same person in every situation, right? You're, you're not duplicitous. You are, you, there's a wholeness, an integrity, a harmony to your character, to your words, your thoughts, your deeds. Integrity is strength. That's why we talk about the integrity of a ship. When we talk about the integrity of, a, of the hull of a ship, what we're saying is there's a wholeness to it. It's designed in such a way that it can withstand the pressure and those who are inside are safe. Hidden doubt is the rust that destroys the hull of our integrity. Hidden doubt is the weakness that will often shipwreck our faith. I know many more people that have had their faith shipwrecked because of hidden doubt than because of open questions. Faith and doubt are not mutually exclusive. Your doubt serves an important function in your faith. It points to the weak spots. It points to the places where you need to grow in your knowledge. You need to grow in your understanding. You need to grow in in digging in. Now, it is a little bit of hard work digging in, right? You've got to do a little bit of heavy lifting to actually get in there and do it. But doubt is the pointer that helps you identify where to do it because God uses your doubt to strengthen your faith. Now, before I move on, I want to just kind of hit one point specifically. Some of you are afraid of your doubt. You are legitimately afraid of your doubt because you believe that you are saved by faith. And if you question your faith, you might jeopardize your salvation. What I want you to hear very clearly is this. You are saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You're saved by grace, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. Faith is the gift of grace that allows us to move into the freedom of grace. You are not jeopardizing your relationship with God by questioning your faith. All you're doing is being honest. You're bringing your questions out into the light where they can be exposed and explored. Unbelievers, a word for you, if you're here and maybe you're here because a friend invited you or because you got one of the door hangers, you decided to peek in, look over the fence into Christianity. Maybe your family invited you and you're here to be polite with your family. I'm glad you're here, honestly. It's a great place to have conversations. It's a good place to ask questions and explore uh, what we believe and, and what, we, what you believe. But here's my, here's my challenge for you, unbelievers, those of you who are outside of the faith, I want you to doubt your skepticism. I want you to doubt your doubts. If you're an unbeliever, I realize I'm asking you to take a risk, but will you take a risk and actually doubt your skepticism? Because unless you learn to doubt your doubts, you'll be controlled by them. Jesus made some pretty wild claims during his lifetime. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Pretty radical claim, right? 
Most of the time, those are going to be the words coming out of the mouth of a cult leader, of an insane person, unless that person rises from the dead, in which case you kind of have to pay attention to him, right? If somebody says, I am life, and you can't kill him, that means something. You know what I'm saying? And so what I'm saying is this is a question worth investigating. In fact, this is one of the most serious questions of life. It's worth the heavy lifting. It's worth really pushing in and asking honest questions, not settling for a YouTube theology, not, not settling for a posture of, well, I know, how to, I know how to tear those guys down, or I know how to, I know, you know what I'm saying? Like actually digging in, doing some legitimate research, some legitimate conversations and, and looking into it, right? I realize I'm asking you to take a step of faith here, but I'm not asking for blind faith. I'm simply asking you to start asking honest questions and to attempt to start looking at the information available in an honest way. There was a, a Christian missionary by the name of Leslie Newbigin. He, he spent his whole life out on the field spreading the gospel in foreign countries. And when he finally got done, time, came time for retirement, he came back to his home uh, in Britain, and he realized that the church in Britain had lost its ability to communicate the gospel to its own culture. So, so he had spent his entire life thinking through, how do I explain the gospel to people that are from fundamentally radically different cultures? He developed something that, that we now call missiology, the study of mission, the study of how to communicate something that's very familiar to us to people where it's not familiar at all. So you have to learn how to answer the questions people are asking with the right answers of the gospel, but in ways they can actually hear. And that requires you to really know them. It requires you to really be able to understand them. And Newbigin kind of came up with this, this, this chart that was designed to help you with this process. What he said essentially was this. If you're really going to be able to communicate with somebody in a way that they can understand, you need to understand who they are and what they believe. You need to understand what they believe so thoroughly you understand why they believe it. Not just have a knowledge of what they believe, but you need to understand it so thoroughly you understand why they believe it. Because that's going to allow you, even though you may not believe it, even though you may not believe the same thing, you will then be able to identify with and communicate with people that think radically different from you. You will have a sympathy with them, a connection with them that allows you to communicate effectively with them. Unbelievers, I'm simply asking you to be good missiologists from your perspective. Can you say that you understand the Christian worldview to such a point that while you may disagree with it, you, can, you, you fully understand why others believe it. That you can look through our eyes and say, oh yeah, I can see your perspective. I may not agree with it, but I can see it. If not, then I recommend you have more work to do. At the end of the day, you may not agree with me, but at least you can understand why I believe the way I do. And in the process, you'll come to know yourself better. You'll come to understand your own beliefs better. Now, if this is going to happen, both believers and unbelievers, it means that we're going to have to learn how to recognize our biases. Because here's the thing. If we don't learn how to acknowledge and learn to see our biases, they will continually filter the way we interpret our information. I get really suspicious of anybody who says they're unbiased. You know why? Because I think that's a myth. There's no such thing as an unbiased person. There's really not especially when it comes to important questions of life. Why? <laughs> because we all have a stake in it. You either really, really want this stuff to be true or you really, really don't. 
There's no neutrality on that. Everyone's going to come to the table with biases. The best we can do is learn to identify them and be honest with them. The people that are most dangerous to me often are the people that have the least ability to recognize their own biases. And I see this on both sides of the spectrum. I see it all the time on Facebook, right? Christians who, who um, get information that agrees with them. And so what do they do? They repost it. They like it. Do they check it out? Do they find out if it's actually factual? No. Why would they do that? They agree with it, right? What they're doing is they're working with an, an unidentified bias, which is when you give me information that basically tells me the government is run by a satanic cabal, I agree. And I'm just going to push it out there. That politician I hate, I hate him. I don't care if what I'm posting is, is true. If it makes them look bad, it makes me feel good, right? If, if you tell me Procter & Gamble is run by Satan, and right there on the label, that little star thing is 666. I believe it, and I push it out. That was like, that started in the 1980s. It's not true. But you still, people, st- it's like every couple of years, it re-pops up. Why? Because we uncritically accept and proclaim the things that agree with our biases. If we don't learn to identify those biases and refuse to be controlled by them. We need to identify our biases in order to be able to, with integrity, ask questions and deal with genuine information. Now, I also see this on the, uh, on the other front. Um, oh, by the way, if that's you, <laughs> Facebook poster, just stop. You make us all look bad, okay? Like, seriously, before you send that next time, before you re-forward that thing, before you re-like that thing, before you re-post that thing, even if it's like, yeah, they're evil, find out if it's true, Okay? We, we all appreciate it. Um, but here's the thing. There are people on the other side that, that uh, drive me just as nuts. There's a guy. Um, I, I don't trust a guy like Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman's a brilliant historian, has written a series of books that are designed to um, basically tear apart uh, a belief in traditional Christianity. I'm not saying this guy's not super smart. He is. And I'm not saying that he doesn't have points that are worth thinking about. He does. In fact, I'm looking forward to, to reading his newest book. Um, but uh, I heard him interviewed on NPR this week um, as he's releasing his book, in, uh, very near, of course, Easter. Um, and it's you know, all about how Jesus isn't really who we think he is. Um, here's the thing. In one breath, he says, basically, look, I'm a historical scholar. That's who I am. I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm completely unbiased. I'm just interested in history, right? In one breath, he says that. In the very next breath, he says that any kind of miraculous event is outside of the realm of history and therefore impossible to improve. The challenge with that is if you start with the assumption that, the, that the only the physical realm exists and only naturalistic causes are at work, that is a filter you put over the information, a bias that controls the way you interpret that information and the way you present it. It'd be much more helpful to me if he would just acknowledge from the outset, I'm a naturalist, humanist, not a supernaturalist. And so I approach this information very differently than someone else who might believe that, in fact, God could exist. And maybe God actually does exist. Do do you see your bias, the assumptions you bring to the information have a huge influence on how you interact with that information and interpret that information? Here's the thing. We cannot become unbiased observers. We can get good at identifying our biases so that it allows us with the greatest level of integrity to interact with the information, to ask honest questions, to dig in, 
for real answers. Here's the thing, believers. If you don't see why this stuff is hard for people who don't believe, you're going to lose the ability to communicate with them and be in a relationship with them. If you, don't, if you can't see life from the... We're saying the dude rose from the dead, all right? I get it if you have a hard time with that. You need to get it. We need to be able to relate with people that don't see the world like we do. Unbelievers, if you can't say, I see why these guys believe what they do, even though I don't agree, you haven't dug in deeply enough to fully understand your own perspective, let alone ours. So in the next coming weeks, I'm going to invite you as we dig in. We're going to be looking at the evidences we have for the resurrection, why I think it's a compelling case, that there are things here, whether you're a believer or not believer, that are difficult, that are challenging and worth considering. We're going to talk more about the nature of faith and how God uses these challenges to grow our faith. We're going to talk about what it means if this is true for us to, in fact, live in the overlap of the ages. If Jesus rose from the dead, he did it as a new creation to usher in a new kingdom and a new era. And if we live in the overlap of the ages, the age that is passing and the age that is coming, what does that mean for daily life? What does that mean for how we conduct ourselves and live in our hope and our pursuits? Because I believe it has a radical implication on every area of life. So I hope you join us in the coming weeks as we continue to dig in. To help you do that, as you leave, we're going to give you a book. It's called Raised. It's where I got the name of the series from. It was written by a couple friends that uh, are church planters in one of our networks. And uh, it's just, it's a short but very well-written book that is designed to help you dig into some of the central questions surrounding the resurrection. And so we're going to give that away. I'm going to ask you to take one per family um, and that you take a look at it. If you're in one of our community groups, we're going to be studying that over the next four weeks. That's going to become the source of conversation in those groups with the whole goal of ultimately digging in and, and, and really wrestling with some stuff and learning in community to process doubt and conviction and faith so that we can be authentic and grow in our faith with integrity. So please join us in the coming weeks as we continue to move through this. As we move into our time of response, I want to put some questions on the screen to help lead you in that response, I ask you to take some time to pray um, and do some business with God. Um, Before I get into those questions, um, during the time of response, we're going to take our offering. Um, The offering is a time when we give generously and sacrificially to fund the work of God uh, through this local church. It's our family basically coming together to to fund the work of the family. And so I want you to give generously and sacrificially as we take our offering um, and uh, do it in in worship and gratitude for grace. Um, If you're a visitor, there's a worship response card in your bulletin. We would love for you to fill that out and let us know you were here. Drop it in the basket when it comes around. If you have prayer requests, drop them in there. We pray over those every week, and we would love to pray with you and for you. Um, If you're a first-time guest, we have um, a gift for you, a connection point, which is in the lobby. Uh, We're not going to be weird. (laughs) We're not going to follow you out the door. We just want to say thanks and honor you for um, joining us today. And so just run by connection point. We'd be happy to, to give you a gift. All right, as we move into our response, these are the questions that I would like you to just kind of sit with and respond to. First of all, I want you to call out your doubts and ask, what questions are they leading to? Instead of suppressing your doubts, denying your doubts, running from your doubts, let's go open the closet door and pull them into the light and ask a very simple question. What question is hidden here? 
What question do I need to dig into and have answered? Secondly, what are the things that you believe that are in the way of actually learning how to doubt well? Why are you so afraid of opening the closet door? Why are you so afraid of actually pulling your doubts into the light? You believe something that's actually hindering you from engaging this thing with courage and integrity and strength. What is it? Is it a fear about your relationship with God? Is it a fear about your intellectual ability? Is it a, I don't know what it is, but pull it out. Take a look at it and start asking God to meet you in that so that you can be equipped with integrity to move into this stuff. Thirdly, if Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead, how would that change the way you live? Believers, I'm talking to you. Hmm. If Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead, if Jesus were to appear here this morning, the risen Christ, and say to you, touch my hands. Here, put your, put your hand in my side. How would that change the way you live, like now? How would that change this week, this month? How, what, would, what would change about your priorities? What would change about the way you view life? Right? I'm not talking about, you know, stop doing those bad things, start doing the good things. I'm talking about the way you actually operate in all of life. How would that change it? Because what I'm pushing into is a very simple question. Do you really believe this stuff? Do you really believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and has it impacted the way you live your life? Deep questions that we're going to spend some time digging into in the, in the coming weeks, but for now, I'm going to ask you just to pray and let God speak to you in it. Let me pray for us. We'll go into our time of response. We'll take our offering, and then we'll share communion in a moment, but I'll introduce that then. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that we are invited to come into your presence with um, really all of our doubt, all of our mess, all of our brokenness, that you don't expect us to perform, to make ourselves better, to impress you. You instead invite us to rest in Jesus because you're impressed with him, to simply believe that because of him we are made right. And because of that radical grace, that gift of love, We can ask honest questions. We can dig in to real doubt, knowing, Lord, that you're going to meet us in it. I pray for my friends, Lord, that aren't followers of you, um, and ask, Lord, that you would meet them in the process. Lord, your spirit gives light. And I pray, Lord, that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding, that we might be able to see clearly. Meet us in this process, Lord, for your glory and our good.